All right, good morning, everybody. If you'll turn your Bibles to Second Chronicles 35, we'll go ahead and finish up the book today. We'll do 35 and 36, Lord willing. That's my plan anyway. And we'll pray and get started. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the worship time we've had, but as we've prepared our hearts through that time of letting the things of the world grow dim and to focus on you this morning, we pray that you'd have your way with us. Your Holy Spirit would teach us your word, that we'd understand it, that we'd see our role, what you're trying to explain to us, and that we'd live it, Lord. And uh, we, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see a neat thing here with Josiah as he... Uh, begins to help the priests kind of get back on their feet again and begin to do the things um, that they're called to do. And there's a really interesting connection, I believe, to what we've been studying on Wednesday night as we've been going through uh, the Gospel of Matthew and how Jesus would show the disciples, look, you can take what you have, the five loaves, the two fish, or seven fish, or whatever they had at the time, and you can feed a lot of people with that. And uh, because I can bless that, what you have and make sure that they're taken care of. But I want you to feed them. Don't send them away. I want you to feed them. And of course, that's a lesson for us that we're each called into the ministry, whether it's in an actual uh, official capacity, a paid position, so to speak. But every one of us is called to take what we've been given by God and ask him to bless it in our hearts and to give it to him. We don't have to send them away to anybody. We're the person on the scene. We're the high priest, so to speak, or the priest anyway which is what Revelation tells us, that he's made us all priests and kings in his kingdom. And so, remembering that moment with Jesus, as he tries to tell his disciples, I want you to feed them, don't send them away. We go to Chronicles, and we we think about Moses, and we think about the law, and all of the rules and regulations and and the protocol for people to worship in the Old Testament was all a picture to show us what Christ would do, but also what Christ would do with us as well. There was a high priest at the time in the Old Testament, but there were other priests moving and doing and working and involved in the ministry. And as you think about that, you think about Jesus saying, you know, while I'm here on earth, it's fine, but it's for your advantage that I go away, that I might send the helper, the Holy Spirit to you. And now you're anointed to do the things that I was doing. And you're going to do greater things than these after I'm gone. And it's interesting. So as we go through this, chapter 35, we'll see Josiah getting things set for the people. Um, and we'll see the people begin to serve and take care of one another, um, which, is, which is our calling. Verse 1, Now Josiah kept the Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem, and they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the first month. And he set the priests in their duties and encouraged them, For the service of the house of the Lord. Um, So first thing he does is, as a king, makes a way for them to do what they were called to do. You know, gives them permission to go ahead and serve the way God had called them to serve. And to let them do, um, because up until now they haven't been able to do that. Things were not going well in Israel. It was a rough world to live in. Um, But he's changed those things. He's brought reform. And and now those that want to serve the God, called to serve the God of a certain Tribe and family can do that, and he encouraged them to do that. Now, you can't make someone do it, but you can encourage them to do it. It says several times throughout here that those that were present, those that were present, which means there were a bunch that weren't. You can't do anything about that. Um, I learned uh, from Pastor Chuck a long time ago, don't preach to the empty seats. 
Preach to the people that come. That's all you can do. Can't worry about who doesn't show up or who stopped coming or who's off on their own tangent for the moment. You've got to teach the people that are there and encourage them in their walk and let the empty seats speak for themselves. There's nothing you can do about that. And so there are many people that are missing from this chapter, but there are many people that are there. And that's all God needs are the people that are there. And so we encourage them to serve. Verse 3, then he said to the Levites who taught all Israel, who were holy to the Lord, put the holy ark in the house which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, built. It shall no longer be a burden on your shoulders. Now serve the Lord your God and his people Israel. Prepare yourselves according to your father's houses, according to your divisions. Follow the written instruction of David, king of Israel, and the written instruction of Solomon, his son. And stand in the holy place according to the divisions of the fathers' houses of your brethren to lay people, to the lay people, the, uh, the people that aren't necessarily called, but they're, they're alongside. And according to the division of the fathers' house of the Levites. So slaughter the Passover offerings, consecrate yourselves, and prepare them for your brethren, that they may do according to the word of the Lord by the hand of, the, by the hand of Moses. A lot of preparing. Prepare yourself, you know, cleanse yourself, offer up sacrifices for yourself so that you can then do for the, for the, for the rest. And it just goes right along with, you've got to remove the plank from your own eye before you can get the speck out of somebody else's eye. We're called to this. The most basic thing every Christian's called to do, and we should all know this, is to stop sinning, to get rid of that sin in our life, to not make excuses for it or to live in it or to allow it. As a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, I'm to let that die in my life. I'm to let the flesh die and my sin to die with it, preparing myself. And of the sin that I commit, I'm to cleanse myself from that. I'm to plead the blood of Jesus over that, ask for forgiveness, receive that forgiveness. James as a rough way of putting it, cleanse your hands, you filthy sinners, basically. He's a little rough. But that's the idea. Because until I've cleansed myself and I'm prepared and right before God and have a clear conscience before the Lord, how in the world could I minister to anybody else? Which is my purpose? Which is why I still breathe on this earth? If to be born again was the end goal, then I may as well die at that point and go on to be with the Lord. But that's not the end goal for us as Christians. That's the starting point for all of us. To receive Christ as my Lord and Savior, to have those sins forgiven, to know that I have a clean conscience and a a right relationship with God, that my sins aren't counted against me anymore, produces in me a joy that's unspeakable, a freedom, a liberty that's unbelievable. I can't believe it. And then you shout to the world and you tell everyone you know that doesn't have that, that they can have that. And you explain to them what's happened to you. We become priests. We become ministers. We become people that give their testimony and share with the world what they need. And they don't go beyond what's written. I I noticed that here. He says, I want you to do what's written. What's written twice. He says that. In 1 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul writing to the Corinthian church, Now, these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. They had a problem, of course, in the church, and Paul was always the teacher, but had to explain to them, you guys are going beyond what's written. You can't go beyond what's written, or not to go beyond what's written. Those are our boundaries. Oh, I don't want to put God in a box. Believe me, his his box that he placed himself in and his word is big enough. 
There may be more to him than we know, but we're not allowed to guess at those things. All we know about God is what's written. And everything we've experienced about God on this earth is written. We'll find it there. And for me to go beyond that is me to go into territory that I'm not authorized to. It's above my pay grade to begin to guess at what God is thinking or what he would do if it's not written. I'm okay. There's enough ministry for me within the bounds of scripture. There's enough ministry for all of us. Nobody's being held back. The only people that feel they're being held back from God's word are the same kind of people that listen to Satan in the garden. But God said, oh no, what he really meant was, and they begins to, Satan begins to whisper in her ear and in Adam's ear beyond what was said, beyond what was written. Some people, oh, what do you think about this book over here that was written? It's a, it, this new author's got a great idea about this, that, or the other thing. I'm like, I, I tell you what, as soon as I get this down, I'll pick your book up and I'll read it. As soon as I understand everything there is to know in here, I'll go ahead and get off on the other stuff. But I got, I got, a, I got my plate full right here. And of course, the idea is there's, this is deep. And I haven't even scratched the surface after, what, 30 years of ministry, you know? What in the world? There's so much to be here in, in God's word. There's so much to be handled and to be understood and to go deeper with and to apply to my life and to have victory in my life and uh, everything that God has for me in God's word. I don't have time for, well, maybe God thought this or maybe this was left out or no, stay within the bounds of scripture. Stay within what's written. It's a very good place to be. Verse 7, then Josiah gave the lay people lambs and young goats from the flock, all for Passover offerings for all who were present. There it is. To the the number of 30,000, as well as 3,000 cattle. These were were from the king's possessions. And his leaders gave willingly to the people, to the priests and to the Levites, Hilkiah, Zechariah, um, uh, Jehel, rulers of the house of God, gave to the priests for the Passover offerings, 2,600 from the flock and 300 cattle. Also, Conaniah and his brothers, uh, Shemai and Nathanel. It's not really Nathaniel, it's Nathanel. And uh, Heshabiah and Jael and Josabad, chief of the Levites, gave to the Levites for Passover offering. 5,000 from the flock and 500 cattle. You can see all that coming in, you know. These guys need this stuff. They need this stuff to get themselves cleansed, to get themselves prepared, to begin to have a Passover like we've never had before. They begin to just, it was in their, on their heart to do. That's a neat thing to see that. Um, in Acts chapter 20, verses 34 through 35, Paul says this about himself. He's got a, Paul always had an entourage around him, in the sense, not, in, not in the worldly sense like you see, but supporters and people that would help him and minister. A lot of times he was in prison. And so Timothy would be on the other side of those bars saying, what do you want me to do? I need you to be my feet and my mouth. Go over there and tell this church this. Take this letter that I wrote and run it over here. I want, he's still running the ministry from behind bars, basically. Um, and so he had this group of people around him, but he describes them here in this way, some of them. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities, because he was a tent maker by trade, And for those who were with me, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this, that you must support the weak. And he doesn't mean weak, like 
They're lazy. He just means they're not able or uh, they don't have the opportunity. Paul never saw it as, well, why don't you go get a job? Or why don't you go do this? He says, well, I'm the one with the business here. Apparently, I'm an excellent tent maker. I mean, of all the guys that was busy in the ministry, you'd think it had been Paul, for sure. But he was busy making tents, you know, talking with people and, and ministering to his partners across the table and, and all. And it was very, it must have been pretty lucrative for him to provide for all these other people with him. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. He says, so I want you to learn that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. He's trying to teach them that, you know. It's way better. I don't resent the fact that I'm taking care of those people. I don't feel like they're lazy. I just, I want to do this, you know. And I want you to do this for other people. I mean, if you have a way and, and they don't for some reason or it's just not coming their way, that's okay. I had a conversation with a, a new neighbor and, and uh, it, it took a while to get past the, the usual, you know, uh, simple things. And um, people in the country talk a long time, but that's okay. I've learned, learned. <laughs> we could have handled this in three minutes, but okay, we're going to do 45 minutes. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I got to learn to say that a lot more. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> nice guy. Great guy. Um, and finally got to the, the, the place where, um, cause he's going to hay for us and all. And he says, uh, he says, yeah, nothing really works out for me. Like it does for everybody else. I'm like, Ooh, now we're getting into it. Now we're, you're in my territory, buddy. You know, you don't even know. He thinks I'm just a, a real estate agent. He doesn't know I'm a pastor yet. So I'm like, it's like that sometimes, and we're starting to work our way into that relationship that uh, you can see where God starts something, you know, like that. But interesting how he says that. Um, and nothing ever works out for me like it does for, for other people. Hmm, I wonder why that is, you know. Not that, not that there's a reason, not because you're a sinner or you're a wicked person or a horrible guy, great guy. I wonder why that is, how it seems to, and we can look in the world and see that, how it just works out great for some people and other people are like, I, what am I doing wrong? Why is it not just happening? Like it happens and happens. I don't know, but you have the same Father in heaven, you have the same God, you have the same Savior, they have the same Spirit, we have the same words. Now, it can be at times how we're living our lives, we not in compliance with God. We've heard it, and we think hearing it is the same as doing it, and it isn't. You've got to do it. You've got to apply it. There's a lot that goes on here. There's a lot more than just knowing what the words say. Now you've got to go do that thing, and we know that. Okay, but maybe you are. Maybe you're doing everything, and I know a lot of missionaries that do that. They're doing everything that God's called them to do, you know, trusting in the Lord. And, and, and those missionaries are out in the field thinking they're doing everything they're doing, and these, they're, they're reading George Mueller. And if you don't know who he is, he's the guy that would sit down and, and pray and food would come to the door for the orphans, you know, kind of thing. Whoa. Uh, you know, why, why doesn't that happen to me? <laughs> Dear Lord. And then you open the door, there ain't anybody on the street kind of thing. I have the faith of Mueller, I think. I don't know. There are just times when we as people, I believe, and this is a guess, I don't think I'm going beyond what's written. I think I can see that throughout Scripture. I think there's a point where Jesus says, what this woman has done for me, she's done his worship to me. You're going to have the poor with you always. You know? Hmm. There's a purpose for that. 
There's a purpose for George Mueller to not have everything he needs so that when he sits down at the table, he cries out to God so that the other person can be the giver. Paul understood that, and I think that's what he's getting at here. It's a blessing to be that giving on the giving side of this. It is also blessing, and please understand this, to be on the receiving side. Without receiving charity, gifts, blessings, the giver can never be blessed. If you want that giver to be blessed, you've got to be the receiver sometimes. That's a very hard thing for me sometimes. I love being the giver. I do not like being the receiver. I don't know what it is. Well, I do know what it is. It's pride. It's flat-out pride. I don't like that. And yet that has to be that way. It's by design. There is a surplus over here. Now, there's a lot of people that see that surplus, and they don't think it's their responsibility to make sure that those that don't have it. Well, that's not, they better go get their own. And, and you can see that in the political process sometimes, and sometimes they're right. You'll have that in Scripture, too. If a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. Okay, all right. But some people are working their fingers to the bone, and it's still not producing for them, you know? It's still not happening, but they're hard workers. And they sit there, and they're like, I don't know where it all went. I mean, I, I think I made 230 this week, but my check says 120. Hello, federal. Hello, state, you know? Hello, tax man, woman. Those people need it. They need help. Paul saw that. These leaders see that. Josiah saw that. These guys don't have anything, and they need to get right with God, and they don't have the stuff they need to get right with God. So beside the physical, which is what we're reading here, of giving out the sheep and giving out the cattle and all those physical things, which is, which is you know, it's, it's money back then. That's what that is. There's also a spiritual understanding here. They don't have what they need to cleanse themselves. There's a world out there in this that we live in that they don't have the tools. They don't even know how, that they can go talk to Jesus, that they have a Savior, that there is someone waiting for them to uh, cry out to Him. They don't know that. And that's our job is to let them know you have a God who's there. And that tug on your heart that you feel that like there's a hole in your heart, like you're missing something in your life, that you've been trying to fill it with this, that, and the other, and nothing quite fits that hole. What am I supposed to be doing with this? I don't understand. It's our responsibility, filled with the Holy Spirit, to come alongside them and say, it's God. And it's not just any God. It's the God of the Bible. It's, the, it's Jesus. You need him. That's the only way you're going to be satisfied, the only way that you get filled and so there's a responsibility for us to do these things, to take care of, yes, those that are weaker, that aren't being taken care of by their own hands, even though they're working and they're trying. It's just not there. But also spiritually, we've got to take care of people. Verse 10, so the service was prepared, and the priests stood in their places, and the Levites in their divisions, according to the king's command... And they slaughtered the Passover offerings, and the priests sprinkled the blood with their hands while the Levites skinned the animals. Then they removed the burnt offerings that they, had, uh, uh, that they might give them to the divisions of their fathers' houses of the lay people to offer to the Lord, as it is written in the book of Moses. So they're following the book of Moses, following the law. Remember that? Josiah just found that last week, so they're doing it. And so they did with the cattle. Uh, also, they roasted the Passover offering with fire according to the ordinance, but the other holy offerings they boiled in pots and cauldrons and in pans and divided them quickly among all the lay people. 
Then afterward, they prepared portions for themselves and for the priests, because the priests, the sons of Aaron, were busy in offering burnt offerings and fat until night. Uh, Therefore, the Levites prepared portions for themselves and for the priests, the sons of Aaron, and the singers, and the sons of Asaph. Uh, were in their places according to the commandment of David, Asaph, Haman, uh, Jeduthun, uh, the king's seer, also the gatekeepers, which were at the gates. They didn't have to leave their position because their brethren, the Levites, prepared portions for them. Okay, there's a lot. I know it's a long read. Or we kind of some of you zoned off. Come back. Um, I, I see this with the disciples picking up the twelve baskets full afterwards. You know, here's what you have. Jesus blessed it, broke it handed it out, and when the day was over and they're exhausted, they came back with a whole basket full. I bet they just sat down and just went, oh, finally, you know, and just finished and ate. And he made sure they were taken care of. And I see this. Everybody's working. The king, the kings and the leaders brought their stuff that they can do, and, and they gave it to the guys, and they're all making sure everybody's getting, we're busy doing this. I mean, only so many guys could be at the table cutting and skinning and roasting, and is that about done over there? Okay, Bob, bring up, you know, I... I it's, it is a huge barbecue is what's happening here. It is an offering to the Lord, but they are going to eat it themselves. You know, they get to partake. This is the sacrifice that they get to eat. Remember, Jesus said, well, it was the Lord, but it was, it was Jesus. In the Old Testament, he says, I want you to kill that lamb, and then I want you to eat it, and don't leave any of it until morning. So I want you to really, you know, pack it in. Eat as much as you can. Anything left over needs to be uh, disposed of beforehand. It needs to be, can't be saved. Okay, it's one time, one event. Can't keep going back to that meal. Can't put it in Tupperware, you know, anything like that. You got to get rid of it. Um, and that's what's happening here. These guys are all cooking and they're getting these things. They're getting them ready. And, you know, you could, I, I, I picture a chef's kitchen, you know, kind of thing. Um, but a little more holy than that. Um, a lot more holy. And they're all eating. And the guys at the gate are getting their plates, you know. Hey, Bob, you've been here all night. Oh, man, I've been waiting for this, you know. And they you know, pray. They can see him just eating and pray. They never have to leave their posts or taken care of, you know. It's a beautiful thing. It's a neat thing to see this all working together. I mean, this is, one of, this is the, a highlight of Israeli history. Everybody's doing what they can do. Nobody's wondering why they have to do it. They're not complaining what their role is. How come I'm on the gate? Or how come I'm just the singer? Or how come I got to skin all the animals? Nobody's saying any of that. They're just doing it. They're just glad to be in the mix, you know, and they're preparing for each other, taking care of them, thinking about other people. I mean, you could get to the point where you've been cooking all day long and nobody even thought about the gatekeepers, but somebody thought about those gatekeepers, you know, hey, those guys haven't got a plate yet. Let's go get them taken care of. They're all thinking of each other. They understand what's happening here. It's worship. Um, Everything I'm doing is worship. They got it. So all the service of the Lord was prepared the same day. Um, oh, I missed a cross-reference there. I did. It's Luke 9, 14 through 17. It's the feeding of the 5,000. You can read that, but that's what I basically just went over. So all the service of the Lord was prepared the same day to keep the Passover and to offer burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord, according to the command of King Joash. And the children of Israel who were present, there it is again, the ones that were there, kept the Passover at that time. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days is a long feast. Seven days off and you're all cooking, well, kind of off. The, 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 the priests are busy, but everybody else gets to eat and worship. 
there have been no Passover kept in Israel like this or like that since the days of Samuel the prophet, and none of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as Josiah kept, with the priests and the Levites, all Judah and Israel who were present, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem in the 18th year of the reign of Josiah, uh, this Passover is kept. So he's 26 years old. Now, I say several times, those who are present, because there's a specific place where this is happening. You don't get to sit at home in northern Israel and expect it to show up there. Well, I'm going to wait here. Maybe they ain't bringing plates that far, you know. Um, this isn't the Meals on Wheels noon drop-off kind of thing. Nothing wrong with that. What a great ministry. But we're not driving up to Israel to bring it. Look, this is where it is. This is where we're supposed to be. Three times a year, we come to the temple like we're supposed to. I, he sent out all the teachers already. Everybody in Israel and Judah knows what God's Word says now. We found the book. We sent off teachers. They all know. And those who were present got to partake in this, got to be a part of this. I think about the disciples again. There were 70 pretty close disciples. There were way more than that, but there were 70 pretty close ones. And when Jesus says, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, many of them kind of freaked out and left. And he looked at the 12. He says, are you going to leave too? And they said, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We don't understand what you're talking about either, but we know if we stay here long enough, we'll probably get it. We'll understand it. And they did. And he explained it. And the people that were there, the people that were left, and there were only 12, got that phrase, eat my flesh and drink my blood, explained to them in the very next chapter. And they understood what the others who left missed. I think that's important to know. I take that to heart. God has a specific place for me in this world. It's not where anybody else tells me to go. It's where he tells me to go. It's what he tells me to do. And when I'm doing what he calls me to do, where he tells me to go, what he tells me, I am in that place where this happens, you know? And I know very well when I'm outside of that place. I know where I'm someplace I shouldn't be. And I can just sense it. I'm like, I'm not where I'm supposed to be right now. I can tell. And this is why this is happening or this bad day or whatever it is. I'm not doing, I'm doing what I thought I needed to do. I wasn't doing what was right in front of me that God had given me to do, you know? And that happens a lot, unfortunately. But I know quickly, I know what to do about that. I've learned the hard way. Just go, get to where you're supposed to be. Be there, you know? I think Pastor Chuck said, under the, under the spout where the glory pours out. You know, that's a funny way to put it, but it's, it's not far from the truth, obviously. Verse 20. After all this, then Josiah had prepared, uh, after all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Nico, king of Egypt, came up to fight against um, Ker Shemesh uh, by the Euphrates. And Josiah went out against him, but he, this Nico guy, sent messengers to him, Josiah, and he said this, What have I to do with you, king King of Judah? I have not come against you this day, but but against the house of which I have war. For God commanded me to make haste, refrain from meddling with God, who is with me, lest he destroy you. Hmm. Now for me, as I read this, that's a tough spot to be in. You're the king of Judah. Everything's been rolling really good. You see some fighting up there. You say, I better be a part of that. And you run up there and say, da, 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 you know, cape flapping in the wind. 
I am here to stop or do whatever I'm supposed to do up here. You haven't talked to the Lord. You haven't asked him anything. And then you got this guy from Egypt who, as far as you know, doesn't worship the Lord, but has heard something from God and tells you, you're not supposed to be here. You're not supposed to be a part of that. If I'm not careful, I could easily, like Josiah does, dismiss what he just said to him and say, you don't even know the Lord. I don't have to listen to you. I don't have anything. You don't have anything to add to my life spiritually. And I'm going to go do this because I am on fire with God right now. And that's where Josiah makes a mistake. God is actually speaking through Nico. God did tell him to go up against this other king. Did not come against him. He just joined the fight because he felt that was his, I don't know, duty. I think I'm going to step in. Proverb, you know, do not grab that dog by the ears. You know, there's more to it than that, but do not grab a dog. A man who meddles in another man's quarrel is like grabbing a dog by the ears. You don't want to do that. Sometimes it's not our place. Now, oh, I thought it said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. I know. I know. So then you got this proverb that says, don't meddle. And then the other one says, you got to pray your way through this. There aren't, it's not just cut and dry. I've got to listen to the Holy Spirit. Is this something that God's trying to work out between two people? Is this iron sharpening iron up here? Are these people smoothing each other out with their rough behavior towards one another? Or is this something where I need to step in and Try to be the peacemaker and help out, you know, any way I can. You got to pray this through. He doesn't, he doesn't pray. He does get a warning, though. Don't meddle with this. This is something God's called me to do. Now, at that point, it would have been a good idea, I think, for him to stop and say, okay, I'll pray about it. I'll pray. I'm not letting you off the hook yet. I don't know if you're of God or not. I'm going to pray about this. And I believe God would have spoken to him if he had taken the time, you know. But he doesn't. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself. So now he's fallen into a little deceit. Why why disguise yourself? He does. So that he might fight with him and did not heed the words of Nico from the mouth of God. So he came to fight in the Valley of Megiddo. There's a lot of fights in that little valley. And the archers shot King Josiah. That's it. Now he hasn't died yet, but he's fatally wounded. He's going to die. And all because he didn't listen. Did he have to die? I mean, he's 39 at this point. It's been years between that last little, uh, the, the Passover we just read until this point right here. It's been several years. He's 39. He was 26 then. Um, and he finds himself wounded in battle that he shouldn't have been in. And the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am severely wounded. His servants therefore took him out of that chariot and put him in the second chariot that he had. And they brought him to Jerusalem, so he died and was buried in one of the tombs of his fathers. And all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. And we love Josiah, but that, is, that was a bad death. It really didn't need to happen that way, but it did. Jeremiah, the prophet, also lamented for Josiah. And to this day, all the singing men and the singing women speak of Josiah in their lamentations. They made it a custom in Israel, and indeed they are written in the laments. Now, the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness, according to what was written in the law of the Lord and his deeds from first to last, indeed, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. So the, we've read that. Um, you can read through Kings uh, towards the end there, 23 and so on, talks about Josiah, and you could read that. Okay, so that's the end. Now, I know 
we've got th this last chapter real quick. There's no cross-references, but we need to kind of finish it up. There isn't enough for next week. And this puts us into a place where we're going to, next week, uh, start Ezra. At the end of this chapter, chapter 36, this is the decline of Israel to the point where Babylon takes them captive for 70 years. The nation of Israel, their land is going to be uh, vacant. There's going to be a, a few that are left behind, but for the most part, they're all going to be taken out by this Babylon, and they're going to be moved because that's that was their modus operandi. That's what they do. They They would take the people so they wouldn't be imagine somebody coming to your house and wanting to fight you. You'll fight a lot harder in your house than you would if you were fighting in someone else's house, right? We've discovered that whenever we go over to the Middle East. They fight a lot harder because we're on their turf, basically. Um, um, and we would fight the same way if they were on our turf. So, you know, so they knew that. So they would move people off their turf so they're in a foreign land and they wouldn't fight near as hard. They, they, were, they, were, they were subdued that way, basically. So this is the beginning of that. The nation of Israel is going to go on and on and on in sin and decline until finally Babylon comes, this foreign nation, and takes them captive for 70 years. And it is to teach them a lesson. He's going to bring them back, but for 70 years they're going to be removed. So that's what we're going to cover here. Then the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem, not very long. Egypt comes along, remember they just got done fighting Egypt and lost, deposed him to Jerusalem, and, impo or, uh, and imposed on him... Uh, on the land, a tribute of 100 talents of silver and talents of gold. That's how you kind of, that's how everybody knew who was boss. We're not going to be an occupying force in your land, but you better pay up. It's like a, it's a, it's uh, extortion basically is all it is. Um, but it kind of let them know who was boss. So they would do that. Then the king of Egypt made Jehoahaz brother, Eliakim king over Judah and Jerusalem. Um, and changed his name to Jehoiakim, and Nico took Jehoahaz, his brother, and carried him off to Egypt. So it, now he's really calling the shots. Well, you could, you could make him king if you want to, but no, I'm going to make him come back with me. I'm going to make his brother be, his, be king, and then I'm going to change his name. I mean, who does that? Can you imagine? I'd be horrible. Yeah, JD, we're going to take you, and we're going to put you in charge of the jail ministry here, and we're going to start calling you Bob. All right, I guess. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? You know? So they are really, really under their authority, and it's really a slow decline here. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Nebuchadnezzar, there he is, king of Babylon, came up against him and bound him in bronze fetters or bronze handcuffs to carry him off to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried off some of the articles from the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple of Babylon, sort of like a trophy, you know, look at all the gods I've conquered kind of thing. Now, the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and the abominations which he did and what was found against him, indeed, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Then Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. Now, Jehoiachin, he was eight years old. Okay. Not a big deal, but in 2 Kings, it says he's 18. That makes more sense because the next sentence here is, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months and 10 days, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. I don't know many eight-year-olds who are held accountable to that. So 18 is probably more like the number. So how does that happen? Well, if you look at, if you look at Hebrew and how it's written, if you, the difference between those two numbers, 18 and 8, it's a tiny little thing. So if the scribe missed it or something, um, that's why we get the eight and the contradiction here, or maybe a contradiction, we think. 
um, of that. It's just a, it's a clerical error, basically. So he's 18, more than likely. He does evil in the sight of the Lord. At the turn of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar summoned him and took him to Babylon. Um, uh, what happens here is he actually gets arrested. If you read Second Kings, when it covers this, uh, they summon him and he comes, but then they keep him there. Okay, so it's a trick. Come here. Okay, and then they put him in jail. Uh, and then they made Jeho- Jehoiakim's brother king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, his God, and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet. So Jeremiah the prophet is a contemporary at this time. He's alongside. He's the one ministering and saying, hey, straighten up, straighten up. And God is faithful, faithful, faithful to give warning after warning. Stop, 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 or it's coming. You can't keep doing this. A a lot of these kings get the idea that because God hasn't smashed me today, he must be okay with what I'm doing. No, I'm giving you warning after warning to stop and to turn around and to repent. Just because you haven't been smashed yet doesn't mean you're not going to be, you know? And every parent knows that. We give warnings. There's a reason, hey kids, there's a reason we give warnings. We don't want to go from, you know, zero to red hot but we're letting you know our temperature is rising. You know, I don't do that again. I'm telling you, don't do that again. Okay. That's it. You know, and God is faithful to do that with us and with his people. Stop. Well, he doesn't sound too mad yet. Keep doing it. And it gets louder and louder until finally he gets quiet. And you know, when dad or mom get quiet, one more step, right? This one more thing, and they're just waiting for that straw. You've got to be careful. He didn't humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar. So he's just getting mouthy with everybody who had made him swear an oath by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the leaders and the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord, which he consecrated to Jerusalem. All these priests that were given all that stuff, remember, to go ahead and get themselves right to minister that Josiah did, they're all falling back. Now, it's another generation of them, but they're all doing evil inside the Lord. Now, this is probably the most important section of scripture. So if you are gone, come back and listen to this one paragraph right here. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. God is compassionate, compassionate, compassionate. I don't want to do what's about to be done. I can't not, as a just God, not punish you for what I punished other people for doing. Just because you're my kids doesn't mean that you can break the law like those other people did. You've got to follow the rules. You've got to do what I've asked you to do. I'm consistent. See, the world believes that this isn't love. They believe love is accepting me and my sin which I consider now a part of me. That's who I am. I've identified myself by my sin. So when you say something against my sin, I've now changed the narrative to not talking about it, but now you're talking about me. And so when you say that against me, that's just unloving. Our God is compassionate. The most compassionate, loving thing we can do as human beings is to tell other human beings, that's sin. 
That's not right. That's not okay. I don't care what MSNBC says. I don't care what CNN tells you. I don't care what Fox tells you. I don't care what anybody tells you. If it's contrary to God's word, it's sin. Oh, you, that, uh, you know, love conquers hate. No, the most hateful, selfish thing you can do is to just overlook it because you're afraid of the confrontation. Because you're afraid of the broken fellowship you might have if they don't receive what God's word says. That's hateful. That's self-centered. Loving is this. This is what God says. I'm sending you warnings. Stop. If sin is okay, if all the things that they're doing right now are okay, if offering their children up to Moloch was okay, if being a prostitute was okay, if having multiple whatevers is okay, and doing all these things is okay, then why is he warning them about what's coming? Because it's not okay. It's compassion. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised God's word or his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Till there was no remedy. In the last days, guys, New Testament tells us this, that's exactly what's going to happen. God's word will be mocked. Your stance on God's word will be mocked and made fun of. You'll be ridiculed. This is normal. Our compassion and our love compels us to continue to preach the truth, to tell the truth, even though it's definitely not going to be accepted. And we know it's not going to be accepted. It's almost to a point where it's like, I'm not even going to say it anymore because I know they're not going to receive it. We don't get that option. We have to. We have to. Until there was no remedy, they would not turn. They would not come back to him. This is what love looks like. Therefore, he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on the young man or the virgin. These people that had been kept at bay by God's invisible fence, you know, his protection, his hedge that we call it. He's now removed himself and allowed the world to come in because that's what they wanted. I'm not going to protect you from these things anymore. I've tried to warn you, don't go, don't do this, don't play that way. It's going to come back to bite you. You don't know what you're talking about. You're dumb, making fun, mocking. And he, he lifts his hand of protection from them. And in comes everything they'd been hoping. See, they had come under the illusion, had forgotten his protection, And so they're doing all these evil things and there were no consequences coming in from their actions and choices. And they thought, well, this is great. This is great. See, the world can be a utopia without God. If we could just sin the way we want to sin and we leave God out of it, every world's just good. We can just get rid of religion. It'll be better. Well, this is what it looks like without me. And the flood came in. All the consequences came in from these other nations. And now they're reaping the benefits of their sin. They've sown seed, and it's now bearing fruit in their lives. They had no compassion on anybody, on the aged or the weak. Gave them all into his hand, and all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and the leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its uh, palaces with fire, destroyed all its precious possessions, And those who escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia 
to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath uh, to fulfill 70 years. So they were supposed to let the land sit fallow, you know, every seven years. And they hadn't been doing that. And uh, so they're going to get pulled out here and they're going to have 70 years of um, rest. Um, They're going to get their 70 years, basically, um, of rest. Now, the Assyrians are coming from the north real quick. The Assyrians come from the north because this is important for the New Testament. When you read about the Samaritans, this is where they came from. Remember the the Samaritan, uh, the Good Samaritan, infuriated everybody when Jesus talked about the Good Samaritan because he was a half-breed. Okay, this is where that comes from. At this point right now, the Assyrians come from the north and they intermarry with the northern Israel tribes, basically. And this mix turns into the Syrians or the uh, uh the good Samaritans, the Samaritans, basically. So that's where they come from. Um, Babylon takes the north or t- takes the south, basically, and, and leads them captive. And so the place is desolate. It's all destroyed and, and, uh, and ruined like it wasn't supposed to be. Um, and so that's where we get the Samaritans. So when you read about Samaritans um, at the, in the New Testament, you'll know this is the moment right here where they become a, a, basically a group. Okay, uh, The Assyrians come down and, and intermarry with Israel. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord might, of the mouth, by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So the captivity is over. We've made a huge gap between 21 and 22 here. Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord of the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, here's his proclamation, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among you, who is among you, um, or who is among you of all his people. May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. This is the release. This is the beginning of Daniel's prophecy, chapter nine, verse 25. Okay which we'll get into next week when we start Ezra. Okay, this is the releasing. The countdown for the Messiah starts at this proclamation right here. They were to know the day when Jesus would come in on the donkey, to the day because of this proclamation right here. Okay, this is the beginning of the countdown. All right, we'll get into it next week. Lord, we thank you for this time we've had with your word. We thank you for the encouragement um, that we're to be out there doing, to be those priests, to be those Uh, ministers on your behalf to cleanse our own hearts, to get ourselves right with you, to apply the blood of the lamb of the Passover to to us first, that we might be a blessing to those around us and minister to them. So Lord, help us to, first of all, stop sinning. And the sins that we have committed, Lord, help us to understand and repent from them, to confess them and to repent from them, Lord. And then help us to walk worthy of your calling, that we might be cleansed and have a pure heart and a pure conscience to be able to minister in love, in humility, to all those around us that need you. Lord, bless these folks as they go today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you.